God, you have done a miracle in all of our hearts. All of us who have believed and repented of our sins are testimonies of your mercy and your authority. God, we thank you for that. We, we praise you, our triune and holy God, who showed us great, great mercy in calling us by name, personally, by seeking sinners and saving them by the sacrifice of your son we thank you today our god and our savior in jesus name amen amen if you would please open god's word with me to mark's gospel mark chapter 2 as we continue on in our study of this great revelation of jesus mark 2 We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning and focusing in in particular on um, verses 13 and 14 and carrying over a little bit into verse 15 where I will pick up next month and continue. Let me read the text to you this morning so that we can rejoice together in this great picture of our Savior, what He has done here. He is multiplied many times over, and He's done this for you, and so you can rejoice and relate to this tax collector, who here is known as Levi, but we know him also as Matthew. Just look and be amazed at what God can do with a defiled sinner. He can make him a saint and an apostle and a messenger for the Almighty God, and He can, he can do a miracle in your life and make you an ambassador for him as well. Listen to Mark 2, 13 through 17. Speaking here of Jesus, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Church, I am very thankful for that statement this morning. Because in that statement, that last verse, I have hope. I heard Him call me in my sin by His grace. I heard His personal voice that called me, not in a verbal way, but in a supernatural, spiritual way. He called me. He awakened my soul. He regenerated me so that I could trust in His forgiveness that's provided through Jesus. What we see here this morning in Mark in the first few verses is we, we see or we hear the personal and powerful call of the Master, of the Sovereign One, of God incarnate. The Gospel of Mark starts off by telling us at the very beginning that this is God's Gospel. The Gospel of Mark reveals to us the good news from God about His Son. It reveals that Jesus Christ is the Master and Savior of sinners. Jesus is the revelation of God's good news. The Gospel, listen to this, the Gospel of God tells us that number one, God Himself enters into creation to reveal His nature by becoming one of us. Through Jesus' incarnation, we see God's holiness, we see God's justice, and we see His merciful grace in the incarnate Christ. 
The gospel of God tells us that, number two, God enters into creation to restore what was lost in the garden due to man's sin. Through Jesus' incarnation, sin and Satan were defeated and our victory is promised. And thirdly, in the gospel of God, we find out that God again Himself enters into creation not only to reveal and to restore, but to retrieve His own. To retrieve sinners by coming after them Himself. Isn't that amazing? That's what we see in Mark happening here in chapter 2. Jesus is on a mission. It's a personal mission for Jesus. It's a sacrificial mission for Jesus. And it's a joyful mission for Jesus. He is coming to reveal God, restore what was set wrong by the fall, and to retrieve His own. Through Jesus' incarnation, sinners like us, we get to hear God's gracious voice calling us to life personally, intimately, and powerfully, effectually. That should be amazing to you this morning. God Himself has called you through the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, God the Son, God of very God, coming into this world to live like us and to come after us by His authority and through His mercy. Levi saw this. I think that's what we need to see here this morning. That's what I believe happened when Levi heard Jesus' calling. He was amazed by His personal and powerful intervention. First thing we see, and really I have one main point and three sub-points this morning, but the first thing we see or we hear is this. We hear, number one, the Master, the Lord Jesus, calling this sinner personally. We hear the Master calling Him personally. We hear a miracle taking place here. Listen, for you and I, it's no different. The miracle of God calling you to salvation is personal. And listen, it is not only personal, the miracle is powerful. It is effectual. We cannot say that the God of the universe can call people and not transform them. If He calls, you come and you are transformed by the call. We see this happening in this passage. Again, the first thing we see in verses 13 to 14 is we get to see that Levi heard the master call him personally. Now, let me me give you just a little bit of background information so you can understand why this is a big deal. This is a massive, massively big deal, especially to those in Israel. Let me just show you why it is amazing that Jesus, after he's taking a little respite from what was going on previous in the past few passages. He takes a little rest and he goes walking down the beach. And as he's doing this, he, he begins to, to, I'm sure, enjoy his creation. I'm sure he is probably praying and probably enjoying his day. And then a crowd comes. And in mercy, he deals with them. He loves them. He teaches them tenderly. But then in his, his, his divine mercy... He turns to one that no one would turn to. He turns to the the filthiest of the filthy. He turns to the vilest of the vile. He turns to one who is just like us. A sinner. But in Jerusalem, this man's sin was, was of the highest proportion. He was recognized as a defiled man by everyone. Everyone hated people like Levi. Not just because of his personal sin, but because of his occupation. Levi was a tax collector. Let me give you a little information about tax collectors. Nobody likes tax collectors, do they? Anybody like the IRS? Nobody likes tax collectors, but that's not really all that's wrong. It's not just that you have to pay taxes. It's the way in which the tax collectors operated in Jesus' day that people hated. They hated this. Jewish tax collectors were really hated for two reasons. One, they were extorting money from their own people. And number two, they were consorting with their enemy, Rome. 
They were in partnership with the people who were occupying Jerusalem, dominating the people of God on their own turf. And tax collectors were in basically business with them. Now, here's here's how their tax collecting business worked. Romans collected their taxes through a system called tax farming. And it worked like, like someone buying a fast food franchisement, okay? Rome would go out basically and assess a district, and then they would fix a tax rate on that district, and then they would sell that district or the right to collect taxes there to the highest bidder. The buyer, which would be the tax collector, he would then pay the assessed figure at the end of the year, but between that time, the time he bought it and the time that the end of the year came, he could gather up as much as he wanted above that assessed rate and keep it for himself. What the system did, the system actually promoted the vileness of man. It promoted what drives us deep into our sin, which is self-satisfaction and greed. This system promoted greed and deception. Tax collectors could basically add rates. They just made them up. I mean, they would tax you for your cart. They would tax you for each wheel on the cart. They would tax you for the horse. They would tax you for whatever they wanted, and no one could say anything because they had the authority of Rome behind them. And they would fill their pockets at the expense of their brothers and sisters in Israel. The system didn't just cause problems in that area. What would also happen would be when when people couldn't pay their taxes, say they came to you to say, "You, you owe us this much money, and they couldn't pay that, they would say, that's not a problem. We could loan you some money until you pay us later. And then these tax collectors became loan sharks. They became extortionists. And when their victims couldn't pay their taxes on time, they would also enforce their payment by imposing on them or enforcing on them physical harm or by viciously taking away their land or their goods or their livelihood. They had no scruples at all. The tax collector would receive masses and masses of interest on the money they would loan, and they seemed to think it was justifiable. The people in Israel and Jerusalem hated this. They hated them. And they not only hated them for their business practice, they hated them for the kind of people they were. These were underhanded, deceitful men. And these underhanded men attracted other deceitful, underhanded men. These men, these tax collectors, not only lived like Gentiles, they lived with Gentiles. The people who were their enforcers a lot of times were Gentiles and pagans. They used them to shake down the people to get their payment. These are the vilest of all people. They attracted the vilest of all people. And they also attracted the hatred of the Hebrew people. Jews were so hated... So despised, I mean, the Jews hated these tax collectors so much and they were so despised that these tax collectors were even excommunicated from Jewish synagogues. They considered them worse than Gentiles. They considered them as outcasts, as enemies, as extortionists. They were unwanted, they were unloved, they were defiled sinners in the eyes of the Hebrew people. This is what makes Jesus's personal choice of Levi so astounding. And when you think about this very much, and you know your own heart, this is what makes Jesus' personal choice of you so astounding also. We know we are great sinners. Yet in the Gospel of Mark, we can see that we have hope and a great Savior who is the friend of sinners. He doesn't come after us when we think we are righteous. He comes after us when we know we have nothing to offer Him but our sin. And He secures that truth in our heart. And He says, the only way out is to look to Me. Trust in Me. Previous to what's going on here in 2.13, we know that Jesus, in Mark's Gospel, was going throughout all the regions of Galilee, going through this region and preaching in the synagogues and in the countryside. And so it's pretty obvious that Levi would have heard about Jesus. I mean, masses of people are coming to him to be healed and to hear him preach. He would have heard about him, and most likely Levi himself would have heard Jesus, but certainly not in 
a synagogue setting. He could have never came to a synagogue and listened to the master teach. This is one reason Jesus went through the countryside teaching. He went after not just the religious who needed salvation, but the sinner who was desperate for salvation. He went into the fields and the highways and the hedges calling those who could not come because of their sin. Yet He called them through His authority and through His mercy as the sovereign one. Last week we saw Him do this in a different form, in a different way. Jesus sought out a man personally there. A man who was not able to come on his own to Jesus unless Jesus exerted sovereign authority and omnipotent mercy. The same thing's happening in our text this morning. In this text, we, we hear Jesus do something that is absolutely amazing and that we're all thankful for. Jesus is calling a sinner personally and powerfully. And aren't you glad He works that way? Because you're dead in your sins apart from this. You're incapable of doing anything righteous or good or pleasing to God, your Creator. And yet God in His mercy becomes one of us to restore us and retrieve us Himself. He overcomes the sinner's rebellion and separation Himself. The Gospel is too good not to be true, is it not? Listen, God, a very God, seeks His own He comes after them and He grants to them what they could not earn, which is a new heart that's willing and joyful to come to Jesus. He does it by sovereign authority and omnipotent mercy. This text is another text that testifies to Jesus' deity. He is calling this man sovereignly to follow Him. And this is what He does for all of us as well. Coming to Jesus is not an invitation. It is a divine summons by the King. He calls and He empowers through His mercy so that we can come. That's what's happening here. This is a miracle you're witnessing. In 2.13, you get a little glimpse of His mercy. You get a little glimpse there when He is going throughout this region here. And then all of a sudden, He takes this little break in verse 13. and It says, He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching them. Isn't it amazing? I mean, Jesus cannot even find a moment's rest. He's walking along the seashore. He's walking and observing the glory of His creation. And here comes this mass of people wanting something. And yet Jesus, unlike us, considers other people as more important than Himself, just like He did at the cross. When He needed physical rest, He stops He says, I need to teach these people with love and tenderness. He sets aside Himself for the sake of others so that He could show God's tender mercy to us. Aren't you glad He does this? Aren't you glad that when you come to Jesus with your problems and with your struggles, He will stop and listen? Isn't that amazing? He is still expressing tender mercy to the crowds who come to Him daily as he is observing his beauty and his creation. But the mercy that's here in 2.13 is just a shadow of the mercy that we see in 2.14. In 2.14, we see that mercy is elevated to the highest point when he personally pursues a tax collector and a sinner. In 2.14, Levi heard the master calling him personally, mercifully, and authoritatively. Look what it says. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. This means that Levi was sitting at his place of business. He had established this position in this region so he could gather his taxes, so he could gather his income. This was his purchased area. And when Jesus says to him here, follow me, and he rose and followed him, that is a miracle for the greedy man. He leaves everything because the master was calling him. He called him personally. He called him and even recognized that he was the son of Alphaeus. Jesus knew him. He called him mercifully. He should have condemned him for his sin, yet he authoritatively Shows him mercy. 
If you'll notice there, Jesus' merciful calling is, is accepted by a, basically an immediate obedience. He immediately obeys Him. Because this is a sovereign command of God the Son. In, in 2.14, we see that Jesus' calling is powerful and it is transformational. And that's the same testimony you have as a believer. When He called you personally and expressed His mercy, it wasn't optional that there would be transformation. He accomplished what was needed for you to come to Him so He would transform you continually until you see Him and you will be made like Him as He is. In 2.14, do you see the immediate, effectual evidence of Christ calling someone to salvation? That's what we see here. This is not an easy thing for Levi to do. This would be the equivalent of any of you men in, in this church building right now basically walking away from your business, your family, and everything you own to follow this teacher wherever he goes and never looking back. That's what's happening here. And really, that is the call of salvation. When Jesus calls us, it means He's owned us. He has purchased us. And there is no looking back. There is only trust in Jesus, following Him, pursuing His will. He'll take care of everything else. We seek first His kingdom and everything else will be added as we need it. Ask yourself something this morning as we look at this text. Do you see the immediate, effectual evidence of Jesus' calling in your life this morning? Do you see evidence of the lordship of Jesus over your stuff, over your time, over your occupation, over your family? Are you willing to follow Him faithfully in repentance, in obedience, and growing in holiness? Are you willing to shun this world and follow Jesus? Are you willing to do that this morning? Because if you are, it's because He's called you. He is calling you to follow Him. And there will be evidence of that calling. You will have evidential faith. You will have repentance that's obvious. You will walk in obedience. You will grow in holiness. And it's sanctifying grace here we're talking about. It's ongoing progressive sanctification. But it is a mark of regeneration. When the sovereign one called you, he didn't call you to work it out on your own. He called you to follow him by his spirit and his power and through his word. Is there fruit in your life this morning that testifies that you are united to Christ? Are you willing to follow him? Look with me at John 15 to see what this should look like. I think that Levi understood John 15, 1 through 16. I think that every one of Christ's disciples up to today understand what this means in John 15. John 15 is telling us that the, the, evidence, the evidence of Jesus' calling will be the fruit that is flowing out of us as a result of being united to the root, which is Christ Jesus. And you need to examine yourself this morning. Peter tells us to examine ourselves as Christians. Self-examination is not something we call unbelievers to do. No, we call them to repent and believe. Believers are called to examine themselves, to see if they are in the faith, in Christ, united to the true vine. Because if you are, then John 15 is your testimony and you can rejoice. And that's what John 15 is here to do, is to help you have assurance of your salvation by first examining it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You're clean. You're mine, is what He's saying. I've called you. And then he says, if I've called you, here's what it's going to look like. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, so your good works, your righteousness, is really the evidence of his work in you, his work in your heart. 
You can't do this on your own. It's the evidential fruit of regeneration. It cannot bear fruit by itself. It says, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Wow. He adds something here, doesn't he? Not just fruit. Much fruit. If you're in Christ, much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Here's here's how you glorify God. That you bear much fruit. And so prove, prove to be my disciples. By this, he says, you'll have assurance that I have called you effectually. That my calling was to salvation. You will prove to be my followers if you bear much fruit. Because you're united to Him. Verse 9 says, As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, what an amazing statement. As God the Father has loved God the Son, so has God the Son loved you. How could we not bear fruit? perfect and triune love that has called us will equip us and strengthen us to reflect His glorious grace. These things I have spoken to you, verse 11 says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Oh, what a great thing He has spoken. His joy will be in us if we are abiding in Him and bearing much fruit. And then our joy will be made full. You will not be happier at any time in your Christian walk than when you are obedient to Jesus. There is where true joy and satisfaction lies. And there is peace there and there is hope there that will transform our daily life. Verse 12 says, This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if. If you do what I command you. Levi did what he was commanded. Proving that he was in the vine. Proving that Jesus' call to follow him was supernatural. Not just physical. Not just temporary. Not just humanly possible, but divinely possible. No longer, verse 15 says, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You, you did not choose me, but, oh, but I chose you and, and, circle and, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, he's speaking to the apostles. He's saying, I chose you for a divine purpose. And in that divine purpose, you will bear fruit that you belong to me, Jesus. Now listen, we're not apostles. But this promise is still pertinent to you. If He calls you, He has appointed you, and you were appointed to bear fruit that testify to His sovereign authority and His omnipotent Mercy. See, we're saved to be reflectors of Jesus. Reflectors of His grace. Reflectors of His kingship. We are subjects to the Sovereign One. And there will be, in the life of all that He calls, all the people He calls, there will be effectual evidence that is there because of His mercy. You can see this again, a couple of illustrations. Let me, let me give you these from Acts. You want to see what what the effectual evidence of salvation is, you can go to the book of Acts and see it all over the place. You can see that it was effectual in Philip and in an Ethiopian in Acts 8. You can see here that when God called Philip, He made him faithful, He made him active, He made him obedient. And then you can see when God works through Philip, He also brings faith, repentance, and obedience to the Ethiopian eunuch. Look what it says in 8.29. Now here we see that it's God the Spirit speaking. It says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go and join this chariot. So Philip ran. So Philip was obedient immediately, was he not? He ran to him 
and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he has been led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then look, look, at, look at how faithful and how active and how evident Philip's faith is. He opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Let's see, he's fulfilling the Great Commission, is he not? He is doing what Jesus called him to do. And then the evidence of that is when, when you see this man hear the truth about Jesus from Isaiah 53, all of a sudden, this man is granted salvation. He is called by Jesus, and guess what? He is immediately obedient. He wants to be baptized. With the call to salvation, there is effectual, observable evidence of salvation. It will be ongoing evidence as you grow in holiness, grow in the doctrine of Christ and the wisdom of His Word. We will grow in obedience. We will grow in our effectual evidence of our salvation. But church, listen, there has got to be evidence of regeneration. When a God calls you to salvation, that God can make it happen. Either He can do this or He's impotent. He calls you for a divine purpose, which is to reflect His Son, to grow into the image of His Son. And listen, He's going to get that done. He's going to accomplish His work. So ask yourself, is, is your life bearing the fruit of God's calling this morning? Is your life, is it reflecting holiness? Is it reflecting obedience? Is it reflecting repentance when you're not holy and obedient? Are you trusting that your relationship with God is still just based on the work of Christ? Or are you trying to do something else to make God happy by legalistically observing rules and regulations? That's not faith. Are you trusting Jesus ongoing? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself daily when you fail, when you do something that God hates, when you sin? Are you trying to clean up your act so that you can go back to God? Or are you casting all of your cares upon Him, knowing that He is faithful and just, and He will forgive you? And He has accomplished that in Christ. Is your life bearing the fruit of God's calling? There was that kind of fruit in Levi's life. Back in Mark 2.14, the latter half here of 2.14, we see evidence in 14b we see evidence of the master's personal calling we see it as effectual we see it in levi's response look at 214b it says jesus said to him follow me and then notice the immediate response what's he do well hang on jesus let me let me shut down the shop here today and get somebody to manage it while i go with you for a while and hang out because i really need to get out of my problems and i think you're the you're the savior who gets me out of my problems so i'll follow you for a while and then i want to come back to my previous way of life so i can enjoy the hope of my salvation and all my stuff no now there's there's a call to immediate submission there's a call to immediate abandonment of sin and depravity because that's what the tax booth represented. It represented the idol of Levi's heart. And it was a dumb idol. And now he had the sovereign God speaking to him. There's a big difference. So he rose and he followed him. What we're seeing here is the doctrine of Jesus' divine authority. We see that Jesus calls him personally and that calling produced immediate personal faith, repentance, and obedience. Look what he does. He, he leaves the tax booth. He leaves his dumb idol to follow God's voice. And think about this for a minute. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, speaks to him in an authoritative way, yet expresses great mercy to one who had never heard God speak to him passionately, saying, I want you. You wretch that no one wants, I want you. Follow me. Not because you're worthy, not because you have something great in you. No, follow me because you need me. 
And I love you. And I have an everlasting love that I have set on you from before the foundation of the world. So come. And Levi and every other sinner who God calls comes to this divine summons. This voice called for more than a mere physical following or a profession. It's it's calling for something more than a physical or personal profession of faith from the mouth. This voice is calling for immediate action, obedience, to follow Jesus spiritually from the inside out, not just from the mouth, not just physically. It's it's calling for obedience to follow Christ spiritually from the heart, continually, sacrificially, and joyfully, because that's what it took. It took sacrifice for Levi to leave his life behind. This call is not one of follow me for a while, it is follow me till you die. This call was something that obviously Levi did joyfully. We can see that in verse 15 later. This call was from God. The the divine voice that spoke here was God the Son. God the Son spoke. And this is the great part. The creator of the universe spoke to Levi and created a new heart. And that new heart gave evidence to regeneration whenever he said, follow me. And he gets up joyfully and leaves everything behind. And church, that's what happened when He called you. Remember that. Remember what happened when Jesus called you. Remember how you were willing to leave everything behind and follow Christ as Lord. And now the stuff keeps crowding in, getting around us like the tax booth. And sometimes we need to remember that that same voice that called us at the beginning is still calling us today to leave this world behind and follow Him continually, sacrificially, and do so joyfully. Luke 5, Luke 5, 27, explains it in a little bit more detail for us. Luke 5, 27 to 28 says this, as it emphasizes what, what this call meant to Levi here, what he had to leave behind. Look what it says in, in Luke 5, 27 to 28. He says, After this, He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi left everything. This was an act of repentance and faith in Jesus. Levi gave up his business. Levi turned from trusting in money to trusting in Christ. This is a divine response that is illustrated to us in Levi. This obedience that he expressed, evidentially, signified true saving faith in Jesus and repentance of his previous life. And this this is what the King of glory commands every sinner to do. To follow Him and leave behind His past. Leave behind your self-righteousness that thinks that you don't need God in all areas of life. Or leave behind your love of sin and stuff and follow the One who created you, who has promised you something much greater, which is His presence and His blessing through Christ. Have you followed Him like that this morning? Have you listened to the voice of Christ and said, I want to follow you continually. I want to follow you sacrificially. I want to follow you joyfully, Jesus, because you called me personally. What an amazing truth. Jesus says in 2.14, follow me. And in, in Greek, that means this. To join Him as His attendant. To become His disciple for life. It didn't mean a one-time decision to accept Jesus as His Savior. No. The Greek verb tense is present imperative. This is a command. This is a command. This command called for immediate action to follow Jesus as kurios, Lord. He's still calling for that today. He still calls for us to follow Him as Lord for the rest of our life. Here in Mark 2.14, what we see is a sovereign command. It's a sovereign command by God to follow Him habitually. It's a sovereign command by God to follow Him with habitual continuation. Habitual continuation. Ongoing following. Continually 
following, sacrificially following, and joyfully following Jesus. This is more than an invitation. This is, as I said earlier, a divine command, a divine summons of the king. We need to understand something when we evangelize people. We are not inviting them to come to Jesus. We are commanding them, according to Scripture, to repent and believe in their Creator and their only Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who became incarnate to live their life for them and to die the death that they deserve so that He could impart to them eternal life by appeasing God for their sins. They must repent and believe that or perish. It's a divine command, not an invitation. And church, it's a a divine command for us to go out and proclaim that. We evangelize or we repent. That's it. It's a command. The Great Commission is not an option. We are commanded to be the voice of Christ in the world. Letting Him call whom He wills. We give a general call. He gives an effectual one through it. He brings salvation by His authority and His mercy through His proclamation, through His message about His grace and His mercy. It's, it's good news for me to actually understand that it's a, divine, it's a divine command because that means it's not based on what man can do. It's not based on man's ability. It's based on God's sovereignty, which is helpful to me. It's helpful to me for people who are mentally deficient. It's helpful to me for infants. Because if God can divinely call a tax collector and a sinner like me to life by supernaturally regenerating my heart, oh, He has no problem saving babies. He has no problem saving the mentally deficient. It's a divine summons. He calls. And they believe And they follow Him in whatever capacity they can. But listen, He does it. And it's a sovereign act of mercy and authority that we see going on whenever He saves any sinner. And I have hope that if it's a divine imperative, He can accomplish His will in it. Salvation is a divine declaration that flows from a personal, merciful imperative. It's a divine declaration that flows out of this merciful command. The command is given by God the Son. God the Son grants sinners new hearts. He regenerates. It's the new birth we're talking about here. He gives us a new heart so that we can come to Him willingly. Regeneration, you must understand, regeneration precedes faith and repentance. You must have a new heart to follow Him in trust and to turn from your sins. This is a miracle. Salvation and this call is a miracle. According to Scripture, it has to be this way because of our nature. If God is trusting in the rebellious sinner to come to Him, the sinner who is dead in his own sins, if He's trusting in us, God's going to be disappointed. We can't come and we won't. We will fight Him all the way. But it's not dependent on man. It's not dependent on God's enemy It's dependent on His mercy. He calls us. He summons us. And listen, we need to understand something. We're passive in regeneration. We're passive. He regenerates. Now, we're active in sanctification. Once He's called us, He will cultivate His work in us, and we will work with Him in that. But it is God who grants the new birth. It is God who will bring us what we need most, which is a new heart that will willingly follow Jesus. Jesus Jesus saves us and we willingly follow Him as a result of that. Understand that? Salvation, obedience. He saves, we follow. Look at John. John 1. We can see here, it's clearly stated in John chapter 1, that it is God who must grant the new birth. God must grant us salvation because, well, because we're in the dark. Because we love our sin more than we love our Savior. Because we are enemies of God and we will not come to Him unless He grants us something we don't deserve, which is forgiveness. Which is coming to us here in this text through Jesus. In one nine, look what it says. I'm going to go rapidly through these because I'm running out of time. But listen. The true light 
which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This, certainly, certainly you would think that Israel would have received the Messiah. But no, they don't. They don't. Look what verse 12 says. But, now notice the phraseology. Notice the way God, the Holy Spirit, inspired this text. But to all who did receive him... Okay, reception implies gift. You were given him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. They weren't regenerated because of their lineage, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What? But of God. It's of God that we are regenerated. Look what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And church, that's how we receive that revelation. That's how we receive the new heart. God incarnate comes to us in grace and in truth and condemns our sin and says, don't worry, I paid the price for you. Trust in me. And we believe and we obey. Look at John 3, 16 through 21. Don't leave 21 out of it. If you're going to quote John 3, 16, go all the way down in context here. Salvation is a divine de- declaration that comes with divine power to transform us. Evidentially. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And world just simply implies people outside of Jews. Not just Jews, okay? Nicodemus, not just Jews. The world of humanity, okay? All types of people, all types of sinners, not just Jewish sinners, He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it, it says, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Verse 18, whoever believes, that means trusts in Him, is not condemned. So the stipulation here in being saved is belief. Well, belief can't come to us unless God grants us a new heart. Dead hearts don't believe anything except deceitful lies. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. They love their sin more than the Savior. Because their works were evil. Their hearts were wicked. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. That's why we don't come. That's why sinners don't come on their own. They're enslaved to their sinful hearts. But... Verse 21 says, Whoever does what is right or what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Wait a minute. The one who believes is believing and doing because the works have been carried out in God. Those that God calls carry out his work, is what this text says. Those who believe do so because God has ordained this from the beginning. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship in Christ Jesus for His glory, for His grace to be exalted. John 6.37 It also testifies here that salvation is a divine declaration that flows from a personal, merciful imperative. 6.37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come. They will come to me, he says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and trusts, believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That verse would not be possible. We were dead in our sins. We could not do this. God had to give us 
something we don't have on our own. He had to give us a heart of flesh. He had to remove the heart of stone so that we could actually believe in His Son and believe that the promise is ours, that we will be raised up on the last day with Christ. In Mark, go back to Mark with me. In Mark 2, 14, we see just a glorious picture of the King of glory incarnate. The King of glory here incarnate, when He says, follow me, He is expressing incarnate mercy, divine mercy. He's expressing His sovereign authority and His mercy to the vilest of sinners, and He's doing this personally. He is granting him what he needed most, which was a new heart so that he could rise up and follow after Jesus continually. Aren't you glad that God and God alone can give the sinner what he needs? This this testifies that Jesus is doing the miraculous. God alone gives life to dead hearts. God alone regenerates us. God alone grants us faith. God alone produces Repentance in our hearts. Those aren't our works. Those are the works of God incarnate. Jesus was faithful. Jesus did what He was called to do so that He would get His own. And He's retrieving us through His calling. We get true hearts that desire the things that God desires through His calling. Levi wasn't being forced to get up. When that command came, there was something miraculous that transpired in his heart. And he came willingly. He left behind his previous life willingly because he had a new heart that longed for the things that God longed after. And it now saw his greed as disastrous and evil. And he left it behind. And only God can do that. Only God can grant that kind of obedience. That kind of sacrifice. And that's what he does here. He creates in Levi a new heart. The evidence of his new heart, his new birth, is seen in verse 15. We see the effectual evidence of Levi's new heart in verse 15. Now, I'm really not going to exposit this so much as we're just talking about it for just a second. What we see here is in this text, we see evidence that something miraculous has happened. And we see it is, it is showing up in a very obvious way, in a very joyful way. This man, just remember, he just left his livelihood. All right, that means he's broke. And he's going to go throw a party. What's that about? He's rejoicing because now he is made rich through the poverty of Christ. Through Christ's humiliation, he becomes rich and so do we. It says, and he reclined at table in his house. means he's basically sitting down to eat with Levi. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there are many who followed him. What we see here is, again, the immediate effect of Levi's regeneration. He is rejoicing. Luke 5.29 says he's feasting. He's celebrating. And you know what what I love about this is, he's not just celebrating this new birth by himself. He becomes an evangelist. Immediately, as the evidence of God's regeneration takes hold of him, He goes out and calls others who could not come to Jesus on their own. They could not go to the synagogue. They were defiled sinners like him. And immediately, God wrought something in Levi's heart that gave him compassion towards sinners like himself. And he goes out celebrating his new birth and calling his friends to believe in Jesus. Listen to the one who comes to sinners. Oh, you don't have to go to the synagogue. He comes after you personally. This is good news. This is the news that we're called to proclaim as Christians. Are you rejoicing over your salvation? Are you rejoicing and evangelizing as a result of what God's granted you through Jesus? Have you heard the Master calling you personally? If He has, it will be effectual. His calling will be evidenced by your desire to obey His voice, to entrust your life to Him, to turn away from sin. And you will go after people with this good news about how God became like us to bear our curse and forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life Himself. That's what you will go out and do. Again, if we're not evangelizing the lost church, we must repent. For it is sin. 
to not talk about the glorious gospel of Christ. And it's a command. He's given it to us. Now, I'm preaching that to myself primarily this morning. You get the overflow of my sermon to me. I do not pursue the lost like Jesus. But Jesus pursued them faithfully, and I trust that He will call me to that active obedience that I need to be in to honor His name. But I must submit to Him. He is Lord. He is Master. That means I must set aside my time, my comfort, to go after those that He calls me to serve through preaching the gospel of Christ to them. How can we who have been called personally and sacrificially by Jesus not go out and proclaim this message with mercy, joyfully this morning? I think if we, if we ponder what He has given to us and how He called us, how the Master called us personally, I think we will go out powerfully and proclaim this message of His authority and His mercy to those who are without hope in this world. Do you realize these friends you have, these relatives you have, are going to die in their sins and face God's wrath for eternity? And yet God has granted you this divine knowledge and called you to be the recipient of it, of His grace, of His forgiveness, so that you could be His mouthpiece. And they could hear the voice of Jesus through you and repent of their sins and trust in Him. What a privilege we have as ambassadors. I think Spurgeon can help us this morning. I'll end with this. It's a good place to end. It's on Spurgeon here. I believe he can help us focus our attention on how we can listen to the Master's voice to call us to go out to sinners with mercy. He wrote this. Christ receives not the self-righteous, not the good, not the wholehearted, not those who dream that they do not need a Savior, but the broken in spirit, the contrite in heart, those who are ready to confess that they have broken God's laws and have merited His displeasure. These and these alone Christ came to save. Jesus died for such and for none other. That He has shed His blood for those who are ready to confess their sins and who do seek mercy through the open veins of His wounded body, but for none other did He designedly offer up Himself upon the cross. Church, God has a people called by His name who need to hear that message. And He's appointed us to be the ambassador, the spokesmen and women, to go out and proclaim this good news that we see in Mark. So let's do this joyfully. Let's follow our Master's calling personally by proclaiming His message with joy and for His glory today in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we want to do this. We want to magnify Jesus' authority and His mercy by reaching out to those who cannot come on their own. Those who cannot hear on their own unless You open their ears. Those who cannot see on their own unless You open their eyes. Those who cannot choose to follow You unless You open their hearts, unless You give them what they don't deserve, which is repentance and faith through Your divine command as You regenerate their hearts. Thank You, Jesus, for calling me this morning. I cannot imagine being in any better condition than Levi. Though I don't know the details of all his sins, I know mine. And I know that you did something miraculous in saving me and forgiving me of the wretchedness that I have committed in the past, that I commit presently, and that I will commit in the future. God, because of that great, great revelation, I am humbled this morning to be an ambassador and a spokesman for you. But because of that great revelation, I want to be a faithful, joyful, sacrificial, continual follower of Jesus and proclaim His message to all the earth. And I pray that will happen in our church. I pray that you will infect the hearts of every called saint 
in this building with a compassion and with the heart of Christ and His mission to go out and declare truth with grace and joy and do it for your glory and for the people's good. God, be glorified through your church's obedience because you called us. You called us personally to be your ambassadors. We rejoice in that today in Jesus' name. Amen.